0: I'd say one of the main key factors you have to look at is are you generating self-employment income? If you're a consultant, you're a real estate agent, you're doing online marketing, you're, you have a a side, a side business where you're actively involved, you're generating profits and you're reporting on say schedule C of your tax return, or perhaps you have an S corporation using an S corporation. Um, As long as you're generating um, income from that business um, and you're paying the self-employment tax or you're, you're subject to self-employment tax, then you're going to be eligible for the solo 401k.
1: Welcome to Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. Today, our guest is Thomas Costelli. For those of you who do not know, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I am a real estate syndicator, real estate investor, a busy professional, and obviously the host of the Passive Wealth Strategies podcast. Happy to be talking with you today. Like I said, our guest is Thomas Costelli. Thomas is a CPA. Today, we're going to talk about tax strategies for passive investors, particularly as they pertain to real estate syndications. Topic near and dear to my heart. So Thomas, thank you for joining us
0: today. Oh, thank you for having me, but it's an honor to be here. Happy to talk with you.
1: It's an honor to have you. Um, as we were talking before we were recording, you've been on the Motley Fools podcast, which is a huge one and a, and a number of other fantastic podcasts. So uh, you're you're a big get for this show. Happy to have you. <laughs> Um, Let's get right into it. So we're going to talk about tax strategies for limited partners in syndications. So I guess let's start at the beginning. What options do we have available to us if we're passively investing in syndications?
0: All right. So I think think the first thing just to point out for everybody who's passively investing in syndications is that you can't use the losses, generally speaking, against your ordinary income, which would be your W-2 income or your... Or, or your other business income, unless of course you're a real estate professional. I just kind of wanted to clear the air there. I know there's a lot of confusion for limited partners there. I often hear doctors will will, will contact us and and think that they're going to go ahead and invest in this partnership and uh, and they're going to you know minimize their their W two or their business income. So that's not the case. But the good news is for. For, for people who are investing in, in real estate syndications, if you're an accredited investor, you're probably somewhere in the 32 to 35, 37% tax bracket. Um, when you're investing in real estate syndication, for the most part, the sponsor who you're investing with is gonna use something called a cost irrigation study. And to make a long story short, the cost segregation study goes in and breaks down the various components of, their, of the property into their various useful lives, uh, five, seven, and 15 year, uh, 27.5 year, for the most part, when you're dealing with residential multifamily properties, <clears throat> and that 5, and 7, that five, seven to 15-year property can all be depreciated in the first year uh, using bonus depreciation. And what this does is it creates massive passive losses for you. Basically, these passive losses will shelter the, the rental income from the real estate syndication. And remember, uh, well, rental income is taxed as ordinary income. So, it'd be taxed at your 32, 35, 37% tax rates at the federal level, in addition to state. But because you have these losses that are generated by the the cost segregation study, you're sheltering all that income from tax. Um, Also, whatever income, whatever, because you're generating such massive amounts of losses in that first year, uh, those will be suspended and they will carry forward for you. Uh, The first thing that they'll do is they'll offset any other passive income you have. So, if you have other passive investments from real estate, maybe you are invested as a limited partner in a small business that's generating income. You can use those losses to offset that income as well. Um, you could use that income. You can use those losses to offset future income in future year, you know, well, future passive income in future years, which is definitely beneficial to making sure you're not paying any taxes on the income generated from that investment. Now, here's where or there's a particularly, a particularly interesting strategy, right? So, that's great. You could shelter through the income uh, during the time that you own the investment from the cash flows. But what happens when you sell that investment? Uh, well, typically 1031 exchanges on limited partnership interests, unless the entire syndication is going to go ahead and use the 1031 exchange, that's usually not a viable option. The cost to make that happen in that type of transaction just far outweigh the benefits of the deferral. But what you can do is you can in the year, in that year you sell the investment, or in the year that the, the syndicate you know sends it uh, sells the, the property and then liquidates the the investment, you're gonna have a capital gain, hopefully, assuming you made money. Yeah. And then the way to you know wh- wh- when there's a capital gain, there's usually taxes. But what you can do is you can invest into another syndicate or perhaps a rental property of your own if that's the route you wanted to go, and use a cost segregation study to create more passive losses on that new investment. Those passive losses can now offset the passive, the gain from that investment because that's a passive activity for you. So we'll see a lot of our clients uh, at the real estate CPA, the firm that I work for, they will go ahead and they will, uh, someone will liquidate an investment, have like, you know, so let's just say, uh, on a $50,000 investment, you might have a 12, 13, 15 K capital gain, and you can just go roll, that money back into another investment, and that investment, that syndicate, that syndication, we use a cost irrigation study. You're creating more losses, and you're sheltering uh, <clears throat> that capital gain from tax. So, you know, for for limited partners, uh, that's that's pretty much the biggest strategies you can use, but they are pretty powerful, and it's a great way to to basically increase your effective tax rate.
1: Okay, so
0: increase your effective tax rate. My bad.
1: Decrease, yeah, decrease your effective yeah, yeah. tax rate. So, it it sounds like it's kind of a, a snowball type of thing, or, or like you said, you get into these syndications, take depreciation, and then you want to, in order to keep that that ball rolling with getting that tax benefit, you want to keep rolling that into uh, properties that you are going to be have some bonus depreciation and, and a cost segregation study to get that initial. Depreciation to—is um, it a deferral of taxes, or what? What? what how's that termed? What's that called?
0: Yeah, so that—that's—that's that's a. It's definitely—it's you're definitely deferring the taxes because at some point, what's going to happen is you're unless you pass away and you pass all your your uh, your holdings down to your heirs, um, you're gonna you're gonna either run out of bonus depreciation because the bonus depreciation will well it starts to phase out in 2022 will be completely phased out in 2026, or you're going to stop investing and you're basically going to have no passive losses uh, to to exit, to use against the gains of those final investments you make at some point down the line when the road ends.
1: Okay. Okay. So as far as (laughs) tracking this throughout the life of your portfolio, do you have to keep like tracking all of the depreciation you've taken. I mean, I suppose it's good to take good, have good records on depreciation that you've, uh, you've claimed, but what's the recommended way to kind of, I guess, track all your, you know, depreciation and make sure you're doing this uh, properly and, and really your, your books and does the, should the average uh, passive investor Mm -hmm. in syndications have a bookkeeper or their CPA do bookkeeping for them to you know, track everything they've done related to depreciation of their properties.
0: Oh no, I, I you definitely don't need a bookkeeper when you're when you're investing passively for sure. Um, this is all mainly going to be tracked on your tax returns. Um, as <clears throat> As a passive investor, you're going to receive a K one from the from your limited partnership interest. That's going to include your income or loss each year. Um, it, it generally, in that first year, you're going to see. Uh, I think it's because of the time ahead. I, I think it's line two. Uh, rental income or loss in that K1, you're going to see a pretty big loss in that first year. Um, that loss is going to be when you file that K1 onto your 1040, your personal tax return. Uh, that's where it's going. That on that form, that's where it's going to determine how that loss is going to be treated. If you if you have no passive income or no capital gains from passive activities, those losses will be suspended, and they're going to be suspended and captured on the uh, on form 8582 that's passive activity loss limitations. That's where you're going to be tracking and, and the schedules that come with that on your tax return. That's where you're going to be tracking how much passive losses you have available. And that, that's pretty much how you're going to be keeping tabs on it. Now, I'm sure if you wanted to, you can create a spreadsheet and you could create formulas to, to track all this for you. But this, to, to go as far as to say that you need your, your CPA to, to, to have a bookkeeping system for you or something along those lines, uh, absolutely not. You can usually go to your CPA. They'll be able to review your tax returns and tell you relatively quickly how much passive losses, if any, that you have available.
1: Okay. That's good to know. I mean, I'm I'm somebody, I like tracking things so I can plan ahead. So it's good to know that we don't need to get too, too super detailed uh, in our, our plan for tracking our you know depreciation that we've claimed over the years. Now, I've heard um, some folks out there in the real estate real estate tax space talk about um, using retirement funds for real estate, like a self-directed IRA and why that's not ideal because self-directed IRAs cannot take advantage of depreciation in the same way that someone investing with just, you know, regular funds, ordinary funds can. Do you feel the same way or what advantages might we have available to us if we're investing with a retirement account?
0: Yes. So that's, there's, there's a lot that goes on with retirement accounts. that I think most people aren't aware of. And the, let me, I'll just start from the top, right? So when you're using with a, when you're investing with a self-directed IRA, so you had an IRA maybe with Fidelity or Vanguard or whatever, and you take it to one of the self-directed, self-directed shops and you self-direct it. Now you're investing in, let's say a multifamily syndication. Well, there's something called the UDFI, unrelated debt financed income. And that's long story short, that's the amount of income that's attributable to debt financing. So, for most syndications you're going to be involved in, you're going to the property is going to be financed, you know, 65, 75, perhaps 80% or more in some cases with debt. So, let's just say that you have 75% debt financing on the property, and that property generates $10,000 of income. Uh, 7,500 of that, so 75% of that income is going to be considered attributable to debt because the debt is financed 75% by debt. And that that amounts would be subject to the unrelated business income tax, also known as UBIT. And that is taxed to trust tax rates up to, uh, up to it goes up to 12%, it goes up to 37% after just $12,500 of income. So there is uh, a little known tax consequence investing in a self-directed IRA that most people don't know about. And what depreciation does for that purposes is it will shelter your your income from UBIT, from the UBIT tax for a majority of the life of the investment in most cases, especially if you're investing in the value add, because there's, there's not that much cash flow. It's not uh, coming off the investment. So that <clears throat> basically circling back to what I said before about the passive losses, those losses in your IRA will shelter that income from the UBIT tax. However, when you ultimately sell that investment, you're probably going to be impacted by UBIT, um, by the unrelated business income tax on the sale. Uh, Now, there's been studies that have been done, and I've ran my own calculations uh, for clients, and usually it's uh, the total investment impact, usually about 1% uh, to 2% when you are impacted by that. So it's just something to be something to be aware of. Be aware of when investing in a self-directed IRA, there is that tax. Now, if you're going to invest in a if you if you want to do if you want to do that through a retirement account, the ideal the ideal ideal vehicle to invest in syndications is a solo 401k. Sometimes it's called a QRP, a solo K. Basically, it's a self-employed. it's 401k for self-employed individuals. Uh, solo 401ks are generally exempt from UDFI on rental properties, so you can go ahead and invest in a multifamily syndication um, through the solo 401k, and you're not dealing with that UDFI. It's completely tax-free. You don't have to worry about any 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 of that, which is which is which is great. Um, but I think to just kind of sum that part up, what most people say why it's not a good idea to put real estate into a into a an IRA to begin with, it's because it's a you're putting a tax shelter, if you will, into a, another tax shelter. When if you're investing, you know, IRAs, you're not paying capital gains tax on the gains uh, within your IRA. You're not paying uh, taxes on the dividends that you earn within your, your self-directed IRA. Um, when you invest in real estate outside of your IRA, that's the real estate could be sheltered from tax by using depreciation. So when you're putting, uh, and that's, you know, f- for a lot of people, that's the main, that's one of the key core drivers of their, their uh, them choosing to invest in real estate is the tax benefits, especially when you're getting to that higher tax bracket. So when you're putting a tax shelter within another tax shelter, you're negating them out. Interesting. Okay.
1: And regarding, you brought up the, the solar 401k, the QRP, and that's thrown out there a lot in the online forums uh, for folks saying, Exactly uh, what you said, the the SDIRA is subject to UBIT and the solo 401k is not, so you should go solo 401k, but that conversation usually does not include, okay, who's eligible for a solo 401k. You mentioned self-employed, but what really counts as far as a solo 401k is concerned is a side business good enough to open a solo 401k if you have a W-2 type job or how dedicated or, or whatever do you have to be to your solo business to open a solo 401k?
0: Great question. So you can absolutely open a solo 401k with a side business. Um, I'd say one of the main key factors you have to look at is, are you generating self-employment income? So if you're a consultant, you're a real estate agent, you're doing online marketing, you're you have a, a side a side business where you're actively involved, you're generating profits and you're reporting on say schedule C of your tax return, or perhaps you have an S corporation using an S corporation. Um, as long as you're ge- generating um, income from that business um, and you're paying the self-employment tax or you're, you're subject to the self-employment tax, then you're going to be eligible for the solo 401k high level. Um, another factor to consider though is, you know, we, we've seen all types of crazy stuff happens where people will say, oh, here's my, affiliate, here's my affiliate link. You know, go send this to 10 of your friends and you'll generate $1,000 in, in income. And sure, that income is subject to the self-employment tax. And sure, that's self-employed income, if you want to call it that. But is it sustainable? You need to have income. You, you don't want to be open to a solo 401k for, and basically you need to have income year over year. Because mm-hmm. in order to have, the, in order to continue to have the solo 401k open, you need to be generating income. When you close your business and you no longer have uh, self-employment income, you have one year to shut down that solo phone K and pretty much roll those funds over into a another retirement account, perhaps the solo 401 K with an employer or it's an IRA. So uh, I'd say those are the two key factors, the two key things, you know, very high level. You need to be gener- you need to have a business that's generating income, um, and you need to have a and you need to be do- make and you need to be sure that you 're going to be doing it for the foreseeable future because there 's no point in opening up a solo four and k and going through that entire process just have to shut it a year later. Uh, so I would say side businesses are fine, but you have to think uh, a little bit long term with that
1: interesting so um, I have a, a number of doctor friends, and i 've talked to them about the the business situation of being a doctor. And one in particular comes to mind, I'm not going to use his name, but if he listens, he knows who he is, an ER doctor here in Richmond, where I live. And um, he's telling me that they're, I guess they're employed as uh, 1099 contractors or something like that. And he has his, his own business, I suppose that, you know, the hospital pays and then all of his expenses come out of that business. And, you know, his salary comes out of that business. I mean, obviously we're not giving him specific advice, but for someone like that, that, is say a doctor who's self-employed or potentially self-employed, does that count as self-employment for solo 401k pur- purposes?
0: So he's generating, he has a, he's getting paid on a 1099 basis. Yeah. Um, I would say at that point, absolutely. It does. Uh, if you're getting paid on a 1099 basis and you're, he's going to have to report that on schedule C of his tax returns, or he's going to have to report it or he's using an S corporation. That's another story. But, um, Yes. In short, yes. Yeah. If you, if in those situations, you're getting 1099 income, you're actively participating in that activity, which a doctor definitely is, um, <laughs> then you're eligible for a solo 401k.
1: Okay. Okay, cool. Gotcha. So, I mean, that that is a big topic that comes up in the forums online. Like I said, the mm-hmm. the solo 401k versus self-directed IRA, uh, debate. Another one that I've heard come up, um, at conferences, for example, is, The uh, there's the benefits of being a a real estate professional for taxation Mm -hmm. purposes. And say, maybe you have a a one, you know, a working couple where uh, one brings in the majority of the income, or only one of them works. Can the other one, the other spouse, get a position somewhere in real estate or or something like that, and file as a real estate professional and get all of the uh, taxation benefits of Filing as a real estate professional for the both of them, and and what's a do you see that, and what's like like a common setup uh, to do that if you do see that?
0: Yeah, so we absolutely see that all the time. That's something we help a lot of our clients actually achieve is how to like kind of think through and work through to get there. But yes, it's absolutely possible. What we typically see is one spouse who will be like a full time doctor or run a full time business, and you'll have another spouse who who either works part time or has a, a part time business that they that they're running. Um, or they don't work at all and what the other outside of real estate of course and what that spouse would do the, the spouse who's not working in a full-time capacity would <clears throat> would work would start building uh, a rental portfolio um, and after the and basically there's certain eligibility requirements so to qualify as a real estate professional you need to spend at least 750 hours in a real property trader business and more than half your total working time so if you work 1,001 hours in a part-time W-2 job, you have to work at least a 1,002 hours um, in the real estate business to get there. And that's why you'll see this other, the other spouse do this. So in order to get those 750 hours, you need to build a, which 750 hours, I believe, comes out to be roughly, if I'm not mistaken, like 15 hours per week. So you need to build a rental portfolio that you're going to be actively participating in. So what that means is, you know, you're out, you're, you're hunting for properties, you're, you're finding the properties, you're closing on them. And then you're, in most cases, you're managing, uh, managing, you're self-managing, or you're playing a significant role in the management process to get those hours. Um, so that's, that's the one thing we'll typically see. And then you, and then there's a second part of the test that the, that, that the, the, the couple needs to qualify. So once one cut, once one spouse reaches that 750 hour threshold, uh, they also need to meet the material the material participation threshold on the rental property specifically and this means that you're spending there's seven different tests um, but we'll just Whoa. talk about one here the most common test that people use to pass which is you're spending five hundred hours or more across your entire rental portfolio and what that allows you and what that allows you to do that's the that's the key part that the five hundred hours is the key part that allows you to take your losses from your rental portfolio and use it against your other income. So I guess just to kind of summarize this a little bit, <laughs> yeah, what happens is you have one spouse who's working a full-time job uh, there or working a full-time business. You have another spouse either working part-time or not at all. The second spouse who's working part-time or not at all, will start, uh, will work in a real property trader business. For the most part, that's going to be building a rental portfolio. They will build that rental portfolio to achieve those hourly requirements, and then they will use the losses from the rental portfolio, again, usually through cost segregation studies um, to to offset the income of the, the spouse who's making a lot of money, presumably, on the W-2 uh, side or running their own business that's not a real property trader business.
1: Interesting. I can see how that would be a huge, there would be a lot of tax benefits for very high income professionals like like doctors for example surgeons uh, and higher paid you know finance professionals and lawyers and things like that Uh, definitely a very interesting opportunity out there that uh, some folks can uh, take advantage of right now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor all right thomas i've got three questions I i ask every guest on the show are you ready
0: yeah ready to go
1: all right first one what is the best investment that you ever made?
0: the Best investment I ever made. Um, that was definitely an investment in a private equity fund that invests in real estate. Uh, the fund invests in a multifamily self-storage, and there's a hotel in it, but it's most like multi, mostly multifamily and self-storage. Uh, the way the fund structured, it pays an eight percent annual pref, um, and it's paid monthly. So invest the cool. money in it, and you're paid every month get get a check deposit, or you get an ACH. Right into your bank account has been an excellent investment. 50 um, 50 split on the capital, on, excuse me, on the, on, the, on the back end of the deal and uh, no fees uh, from the sponsors. It's their, wow. their, entire, their entire split is that 50 50 uh, profit on the back end, which, is, which has been fantastic. Easily the best investment uh, that, I've, that I've made.
1: Wow, that's a pretty sweet investment. On the other side of that, we have the worst investment. What is the worst investment? that you've yeah. ever made
0: BitConnect. um i don't know if you're familiar with bitcoin and all oh, that rush man. last year i think in 2018 yeah uh there was this thing called BitConnect, and uh you basically put your money in it and they i forgot exactly how it worked off the top of my head but they pay you back a certain amount um anyway what happened was bit connect basically went under uh they got stopped by uh by some authority shut them down i forgot who it was and I lost all the money that was in the Bet Connect account, which it wasn't, dev- it wasn't a devastating loss, but it was like, yeah, this is definitely the worst investment that I've ever made. Wow.
1: Well, yeah. I pulled up the, uh, the Wikipedia page as you were talking and within the first paragraph, it calls it a type of Ponzi scheme. So that is, uh, a <laughs> that is not yeah. a good sign, but,
0: yeah. uh, I mean, I, I know a lot of people who lost a lot more money than I did. I know people lost tens of thousands of dollars. I've I, I don't know people, but I've heard of people losing hundreds of thousands of dollars on that. On um, BitConnect, I only lost maybe a few grand, but still bad investment.
1: Bad investment, but yeah, a couple thousand dollars. Oh, well, it's an expensive lesson, but not a, a life-changing uh, downside, I suppose. Now, my favorite question at the end of the show is, what is the most important lesson that you've learned in investing?
0: most important lesson I learned is always invest with a, if you're going to be investing passively uh, always invest in a deal that has a pref, because the pref it, it puts pressure on the sponsor to perform. And also you're guaranteeing a minimum rate of return or you're getting as close to a guarantee of a minimum rate of return you have, because there's other investments I could have named uh, as, as, a, as the worst investment, but I basically almost broke even on that deal um, made s- small amount of money, but that capital would have been better placed in another deal that had a pref. And I would have known at least, you know, I would have had a, a, a good shot at getting at least an 8% return before the sponsor got anything. So that would be the most important thing I've learned in investing would be, well, it would be this, it'd be this, it'd be always do due diligence, due diligence on the sponsor and always invest in, in a, in a, in a syndication as a pref preferred return.
1: Interesting. Okay, so I have a follow up question to that. I th- it's a great answer. Um, we see these days because we're in a seller's market, and sponsors want to get deals done. Sometimes we see sponsors doing deals where, yeah, there's a pref in the paperwork, but we're not really expecting to pay the pref. If we're being totally honest, it doesn't really look like maybe the pref is going to get paid. Now, you, my guess is you probably shy away from that. But as far as as a passive investor, how do we See that coming. I mean, it might say a there's going to be an eight percent pref in the you know the, the underwriting, but maybe yeah. your underwriting isn't conservative. What do you think about that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I would definitely say, yeah, I would definitely say it, it all comes down to the due diligence, and maybe that's the number one piece of advice: do the due diligence upfront on the deal. That includes the sponsor, that includes the market, that includes the property to an extent as a limited partner, and it includes the it includes the financial projections. You got to ask yourself: is this realistic? Because you know, we just had Frank Gellinelli on on our podcast. Awesome. The guy, we had him on there and he was, and we were talking about at the end of the podcast, all these sponsors, you see all these, uh, you see these attorneys for the most part, um, they'll write up these, these operating agreements and, and, and waterfall structures that, that, that don't apply to real life. They'll never actually, you'll never actually see them occur in real life. They're all modeled for projection. So I guess really you have to just kind of use your, trust your gut, use, use some common sense. Um, and just ask yourself and, and compare deals and do, do your due diligence to see, is this actually possible, you know, uh, or is this too good to be true? And, uh, that won't steer you wrong. I, I don't, I don't think.
1: Yeah. I mean, I see a lot of, uh, too good to be true. I wouldn't say a lot of, but, um, decent amount of too good to be true, uh, these days with folks trying to get deals done. So yeah, important to watch out. Um, so <laughs> I appreciate everything today. If folks want to learn more about you, you mentioned you have a podcast. Uh, where can they find you? Where can they find your podcast? What's the name of your podcast?
0: Yes. Let's have so, it. so we have uh, we have a podcast called the Real Estate CPA Podcast. You can find it pretty much iTunes, uh, you know, iTunes Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, the, the whole nine. It's everywhere you can find it. A lot of tax and accounting content on there. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn um, and also just wanted to just let everybody know we are doing a tax and legal summit uh, specifically for real estate investors. It's going to be tax and legal experts uh, coming up in February, uh, end of February, early March. And if you're interested in checking out the event, you can check it out at taxandlegalsummit.com and use promo code Tom 20 and you'll get 50% off the ticket, which is going to get you the ticket for 99 bucks. Sweet. It's a good deal.
1: Awesome. well, I, I definitely appreciate that and uh, I'm gonna have to try to get uh, Frank Allen and Lee on the show. He's his uh, book on calculating cash flow.s It was one of my first books I read about real estate after Rich Dad, of course. Uh, and it's still one of my favorites. I mean, I, I'm a numbers guy, so you know I, I gobbled that book up. so that's quite the quite the get you got.
0: Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I think everybody should have uh, everybody should have that book on their bookshelf. Every real estate investor, and you know, Frank was a great guest, and uh, I would definitely recommend you just you just reach out to him, you just let him know what you want to do, and I'm sure he'd be open to come on the show.
1: Awesome. I'm gonna have to do that. I have a an action item now. Well, thanks once again for for joining us and for all the great uh, lessons today.
0: All right. No, thank you for having me.
1: To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying the show. If you are, please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes, Apple Podcasts now. I'm going to keep calling it iTunes. That would be a very big help. I very much appreciate it. If you know anyone that could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the fold. For now, I'm your host, Taylor Lote, signing off. Have a great day. Bye-bye.